Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate on the motion Karl Marx was right. Capitalism post-2008 is falling apart under the weight of its own contradictions. Since the collapse of the Western banking system in 2007 to 2009, the advanced industrial economies have struggled to recover in spite of highly unorthodox measures, huge monetary stimulus, and yet um, the constraints of high public debt and anemic growth have proved as yet almost insurmountable. Is this an illustration of the inherent contradictions of capitalism, the immiseration of the proletariat, the rate of the profit, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? Or are we instead seeing some exceptional event brought about not by the contradictions of capitalism but by the failure of one particular segment of the economy, the financial system, and at the same time seeing the productive power of the market in other parts of the world, notably China? The motion, um, oh, the proponents of the motion will speak first. The motion again, Karl Marx was right, capitalism post-2008 is falling apart under the weight of its own contradictions. The speaker who's going to introduce that motion is Tristram Hunt, historian, Labour MP, and author of a biography of Friedrich Engels. Please welcome Tristram Hunt. <clears throat> your time starts now. Oliver, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, in July 1851, Friedrich Engels, the Manchester cotton lord and co-author of the Manifesto of the Communist Party, wrote to his friend Karl Marx in London with some very promising news. Speculation in railways is again reaching dazzling heights. Since the 1st of January, most shares have risen by 40%, and the worst ones more than any. This is promising. Clearly, capitalism's denouement was just around the corner. The East India market was overstocked, while the British cloth industry was being hit hard by a flood of cheap cotton imports. If the crash in the market coincides with such a gigantic crop, things will be cheery indeed. Peter Ehrman, his business partner, is already fouling his breeches at the very thought of it, and the little tree frog is a pretty good barometer. Bankruptcies were picking up in London and Liverpool, overproduction was glutting the market, and Engels was adamant that the end of capitalism was nigh. Instead, it wasn't to be. Exports surged, wages rose, standards of living improved, and the mid-Victorian boom ground inexplicably on. In 1857, Engels' optimism returned as the markets faltered. The American crash is superb, he wrote, and not yet over by a long chalk. Now we have a chance. The conditions for revolution were once again ripe. With the capitalist mode of production and collapse, the working class would surely rise to the occasion. But two months into the crash, the proletariat had still yet to realize its historic calling. There are as yet few signs of revolution. Engels noted gloomily, for the long period of prosperity has been fearfully demoralizing. So you will appreciate, friends, that there is something of a prehistory to this evening's debate. Indeed, my old friends, Marx and Engels, have been predicting the end of capitalism for over 150 years. And now our opponents are suggesting that the immediate failure of such predictions invalidates our claim that Karl Marx is right. And we would suggest quite the contrary. To argue this in the wake of cash machines crashing in Cyprus, over £60 billion spent on bailing out British banks, and the repercussions of the global financial crash still making their way through eviscerated social fabric of so many Western societies. Well, I put it to you, it is positively perverse. Ladies and gentlemen, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were the first to chart the uncompromising, unrelenting, compulsively iconoclastic nature of capitalism. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interests, than callous cash payments. 
It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. And it was Marx who revealed how capitalism would crush languages, cultures, traditions, even nations in its wake. In one word, it creates a world after its own image, he wrote, long before globalization became a byword for Americanization. And Marx was also clear about the social consequences, the growing divisions between the lifestyles of the rich and the poor under unregulated capitalism, what Benjamin Disraeli and Ed Miliband would call the two nations. And in Britain, we have seen this problem with the emergence of the so-called squeeze middle. And the diagnosis is right. Our current models of capitalism are not working. The wealth generated by the growth prior to 2008 simply did not trickle down to ordinary people. As Professor Mike Savage of the London School of Economics puts it, it is striking that we have been able to discern a distinctive elite whose sheer economic advantage sets it apart from the other classes. At the opposite extreme, we have discerned the existence of a sizable group which is marked by the lack of any significant amount of economic, cultural or social capital. These are the two nations. So let us get to the crux of the matter. The 2008 crash and its lingering aftermath revealed the failure of the theology of the uncontrolled global free market. That is what we're arguing about. That is what capitalism is about. And all Marx and Engels' warning over the dangers of monopoly capitalism and concentrated finance have come to pass. So why then no total collapse of capitalism? Because right around the world, governments have been forced to bail out the so-called free market. We have bailed out the banks, we have subsidised industries, we've sorted out the insurance sector, we've underpinned financial services, we've kept the whole system afloat. From car scrappage schemes to AIG to nationalising Fannie and Freddie Mae, it is the forces of collectivism which have saved capitalism. The very continuance of capitalism under current conditions is proof that Karl Marx was right. Capitalism has once again crumbled under the weight of its own internal contradictions. And it is the state in America, in Cyprus, in China, in India, in the UK, which has once again saved it. The facade of normality is vindication of the crisis. And why you can have no hesitation in supporting this motion tonight. Although I do fear that Marx and Engels, rather than being delighted with the current turn of events, are themselves probably feeling fearfully demoralised. Thank you. Thank you, Tristram. And our first speaker against the motion is George Magnus. George is an economist, commentator and author. He has a long record as an economist in the financial services industry, most recently as chief economist and senior economic advisor at UBS for 15 years till recently. He now works as an independent consultant. Um, George, your time starts now. Thank you, Oliver, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In the wilds of North London, where I live, uh, near Highgate Cemetery, is a grave and a tombstone of the wily old political economist who's the subject of tonight's debate. Many of you may have been there uh, to pay homage or simply to visit and reflect. But the revival of interest in Karl Marx since the financial crisis and the reason he's here in spirit this evening is because we're suffering, as I'm sure you know, an attack of deep economic pessimism. You'll also know uh, very well that our fixation with this pessimism and crisis and capitalism is not unique. For example, John Maynard Keynes wrote about this in 1930 in a tract called The Economic Consequences for Our Grandchildren, in which he said, it is common to hear people say that the epoch of enormous economic progress is over and that a decline in prosperity is more likely than an improvement in the decade ahead of us. 
eerily familiar words, but my view is that Keynes's dismissal of the pessimism of his own time has relevance today. And I'd like to argue two points. First, that the whole point about the contradictions of capitalism is not specifically whether Marx's, or Marx's analysis is relevant, which personally I think in many ways it is, uh, but it's the outcome, it's the synthesis and our capacity to basically nurture and establish coping mechanisms. And the second point is that the main threats to our economic and social model today come actually from two sources that didn't even exist until quite recently and are neither the direct outcrop of capitalism nor terminal. So the first point, on Marx's tombstone, as you'll know if you've been there, there's an inscription taken from the theses on Feuerbach which says, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it, which is precisely what our antecedents have done by developing coping mechanisms like institutions of the rule of law, limited liability companies, trades union, mutual societies, insurance, welfare, and technological uh, discoveries that drive productivity, income, and jobs. Finding those coping mechanisms is an endless task, and we need to make more progress on at least three of them. The first is that we can't obviously keep shifting income from the owners of labor to the owners of capital without experiencing income inequality, impoverishment of workers relatively, if not absolutely, excess capacity, and unemployment. The second uh, point is that finance, or the second contradiction, if you want, is that finance has been an enabler of innovation and growth. But, as articulated poignantly by the economist Hyman Minsky 30 years ago, it's also an endogenous source of systemic instability. I'm sure this doesn't need to go into any further explanation here, except to say that, as the uh, raconteur and economist and diplomat J.K. Galbraith once quipped about recurring bouts of speculation and euphoria from Rome onwards, every generation... Uh, basically suffers from a brevity of financial memory, and every generation makes the specious association between the ownership of money and the possession of intelligence. Bankers' pay and the wider issue of management remuneration, of course, are rarely out of the headlines and an obvious grappling iron for capitalism's critics. But the problem is that rent gouging, or rent seeking as it's more politely known, is the result of eminently fixable market and corporate governance flaws. We could, for example, break up the banks, as the Vickers Commission has urged. Uh, we could ban or restrict the use of stock options and other tools that tie remuneration to short-term stock market performance. There's nothing specifically systemic about not being able to fix these problems if we really want. Now, the two points I mentioned earlier, which are relatively recent, are 21st century aging and technology, which actually have, in some respects, the flimmiest, flimsiest of links to capitalism uh, and are questionably, though, big issues. For example, in the first case, weak fertility and rising life expectancy are driving a unique and relentless rise in the age structure of our societies, never seen before. And it's challenging us to redefine the social rights and obligations of citizens versus the state. It's a very complex issue to get over, particularly at a time like this. And the thing about technology and automation is that they are also displacing white-collar, including skilled jobs, from retail to radiology and from clerical to even legal positions. Automation and robots are generating very strong demand for labor at the top of the occupational structure and the bottom, leaving, as my opponent Tristram said before, uh, those with average levels of human capital and skill in the middle very vulnerable and dragging income inequality higher. We don't really know how we're going to solve this problem in the long run, but capitalism still has very persuasive credentials. Henry Ford and a prominent labor leader supposedly once teased each other about factory robots not being able to pay union dues or buy motor cars. Henry just simply retorted oh, that he was going to pay his workers twice the going rate, which he did, which underscores a process in capitalism that runs from productivity to higher wages and lower prices, rising demand and jobs and so on. The point, of course, is that capital, including human capital, makes people more productive and societies better off. And my hunch is that in time, the revolution going on in advanced manufacturing in the energy sector and new technology uh, will deliver significant benefits. So in conclusion, Mr. Chairman, 
Our opponents may argue that capitalism itself is the systemic problem behind our pessimism and that markets don't work and that a radical redrawing of the boundaries between the state and the private sector is necessary. Personally, I don't think anyone thinks that laissez-faire is the answer, but we should be careful what we wish for. China's leaders have the courage and will to implement difficult reforms in the next five to ten years. Chinese capitalism will move our way. If they don't, we shall see. Ladies and gentlemen, finally, our predicament, I would submit, is not the sound of capitalism falling apart, but a painful period of adjustment from one economic and technological period to another. Thank you. Thank you, George. Our second speaker for the motion is Robin Blackburn. Robin is a Leverhulme Fellow at the University of Essex. He's a former editor of the New Left Review, where he's written on the collapse of Soviet communism and the credit crunch of 2008. Robin, your time starts now. Thank you. Yes, uh, Marx was right. If you study our motion, you'll see that we're, we aren't arguing he was right about everything, simply about the contradictions of capitalism. What did Marx mean by contradictions? Uh, let's look at some examples. Marx urged that capitalism, by generating wealth at one pole and poverty at another, destroyed its own momentum. Those who were badly paid or unemployed <coughs> couldn't be good customers. In recent decades, growing inequality undermined accumulation. But the financial wizards had a fix. Wall Street and the city, having failed to nourish their own domestic economies, instead came up with the brilliant idea of becoming loan sharks, lending to the poor at high interest rates and then bundling these debts into supposedly fail-safe financial products. But extravagant inequalities eventually took their toll. U.S. subprime borrowers, the poor, devoted, defaulted in droves, while tens of millions of underpaid Chinese workers couldn't buy much from the West or anyone else. These hard facts punctured the delirium of investors, pulled the rug from underneath the big banks, and brought on the global downturn. But here's the good news. Working people in China have protested at miserable pay. Recent worker militancy in China has raised wages, which would be good for global recovery if only the other governments were doing the heavy lifting to boost global demand. But there's no sign of concerted measures of debt forgiveness and public investment to reignite growth. This leads us to another contradiction. Namely, even as the different parts of the capitalist world become more interdependent, they each resort to beggar-my-neighbor policies. The IMF and World Bank should boost lending to producers, but instead they tolerate competitive austerity and urge all countries to strive for an export surplus, as if this wasn't a mathematical impossibility. It would be more rational to lend money to the man in the moon and then let him purchase any unsold inventory. That might sound ridiculous, but scarcely less so than the world of QE or quantitative easing, now practiced by the world's most powerful central banks. QE sounds a little queasy, a coded reference to financial bowel movements. But it's nearly, really no more than printing money and then putting it the way of banking folk. Next item in the repertoire of desperate expedience is helicopter cash, as the Financial Explain Times explained last Friday. This involves, I kid you not, simply sharing the population with great wads of notes as if dropped from helicopters. But somehow the giveaways all land on the financial districts. If the financial authorities had the courage of their convictions, they'd instead pay out £50,000 to every citizen with the proviso that they must pay down debt or spend the money. This would really get the economy moving. But we all know it won't happen. It's too sensible. So here's another perversity of capitalism. Its official custodians resort to giveaways far bigger and far less justified than the welfare states they demonize, 
Official bailouts represent socialism for bankers, welfare for billionaires down on their luck. Marx held that the world of capital was anarchic, that it had no regulatory center. Notwithstanding the IMF and World Bank, this is still true. When it comes to bailouts, the international organizations only have the resources that rich countries allow them to have. They don't have a fiscal base of their own. The ungoverned world of international money is constantly prone to speculation and crisis because crisis is its only way of wiping slates clean and starting afresh. And money is sovereign because the world's great powers allow themselves to be pushed around by Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. Or perhaps something else is going on. Maybe it's some other organizations who are pushing us all around. The United States, with its boundless faith in capitalism, is also the country where, in October 2008, the Treasury Secretary opted to take out huge stakes in the big banks. The U.S. administration also nationalized two global titans, General Motors and AIG. Though they didn't go nearly far enough, these measures were, for a time, quite effective. Indeed, in a contradiction Marx would have pounced on, the more successful types of capitalism borrow great doses of state intervention, coordination, and public entrepreneurship. It's the laggards and dunces who parrot the witless slogan that governments can't pick winners. In Taiwan, with its hugely successful science parks, or Brazil, with its world-beating agricultural exports, they laugh at such idiocy. And then think of communist China with its state banks doing more to resuscitate global demand than have Western governments. The international markets prop up, are propped up by China's Politburo. There's a palpable contradiction of capitalism, this time one that cuts both ways, I agree. Here in Britain, successive governments have no faith in the British people, despite their outstanding record of innovation. Instead of endowing a string of public regional funds with the resources to get small and medium business investing again, they channel the cash to zombie banks whose only pathetic thought is to draw in their horns, deleverage, and reduce exposure. Having lost a bundle betting on moonshine, they now refuse to invest in real research centers. Marx wanted to go beyond capitalism, but he didn't reject modernity. In fact, the word contradiction is borrowed from Hegel's dialectical philosophy and, as applied to capitalism, implied that there could be virtue in the market mechanism so long as it's rescued from the greed of capitalists and the blinkered dogma of neoliberalism's high priests. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Our second speaker against the motion is Madsen Piri. Madsen is president and founder of the Adam Smith Institute, the free market think tank. Madsen, your time starts now. Okay. Um, well, like many public figures who leave a legacy, either in their writings or their deeds, uh, Karl Marx was sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Everyone is, uh, barring Edward Heath. I'm going to concentrate on some of the things Marx was wrong about because they're relevant to the motion and also it's actually more fun. Um, he was wrong to predict that history would take us to the inevitable triumph of the proletariat and then stop. History shows no signs of doing either. Marx was also wrong to suggest that this would happen first in the most advanced economies as they reach the final stage of capitalism. In fact... Such revolutions as took place um, came in less developed uh, countries, less developed economies such as Russia and China. It has not happened in the advanced economies, and this could be because Marx was wrong about something else. He predicted that capitalism would drive down wages to survival level before its final denouement. But in fact, as economies became more advanced, both wages and living standards rose to levels not even dreamt of in Marx's day. And this seems to have lowered somewhat the pressure for revolutionary violence and change. Marx was also wrong about something very much more fundamental. He was wrong about change. 
And I don't just mean he was wrong about the changes that would come about. More fundamentally, he was wrong about how change takes place. He took the Hegelian model of change. Now, to the philosopher Hegel, change comes about in staccato triangles. A state of affairs nurtures its opposite, and from the violent clash between them, a new state of affairs emerges. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Violence is at the very core of it, and hence Marx's commitment to revolution. The folly is that Marx was a contemporary of Darwin. He'd read Darwin's Origin of Species. He actually admired Darwin's account of the origins of humankind. He failed, however, to spot the significance of Darwin's theory of change and to incorporate it into his own program. Darwin advanced a gradual mechanism of change in which small differences gradually come to dominate over time. It is evolutionary not revolutionary. And it's a much more accurate description of how change usually happens in human societies. The point is that capitalism changes and evolves. It has been through many transformations. The capitalism that Marx thought would collapse under its own contradictions is not the capitalism of today, the one that the motion refers to. Capitalism has faced many crises. Each time it has evolved and changed. Each time, a new form of capitalism has emerged to solve the problems its predecessor faced. This is how human beings progress. We solve our problems by adapting our practices. Yes, capitalism certainly faced a crisis in 2008, but it's still with us, and as yet, uncollapsed. Politicians like booms and bubbles because they help them to win elections and therefore office. And so... Capitalism must now find procedures to limit their ability to do this. Those whose greed is for power are no less deadly than those whose greed is for gain, and both need rules to circumscribe their scope for action. I wish to make a further point, that capitalism will survive because it is the only valid way we've found that works in practice to create wealth and all of the opportunities that come in its wake. Marx was wrong about another important thing. He subscribed to the labor theory of value. He believed that the value of a thing arises from the labor put into producing it, hence surplus value, exploitation, charging people more than the cost, labor cost of producing it, exploiting the workers, wrong. Value is based on demand. If no one wants a thing, then no matter how much labor went into producing it, it is literally valueless. It has to be demand-based. Yes, capitalism grows more complicated and more ambitious as it evolves, but its principles remain. Capitalism will survive its current crisis. It will be tweaked and modified, but it will not collapse because nothing has ever been found that can replace it or do what it does or bring the advantage and the benefits it brings. It has brought more to human achievement than any other institution devised by humankind. It's created wealth on an unprecedented scale. It's enabled us to conquer disease, to conquer poverty, malnutrition, starvation, disease. It's enabled us to fund arts, cultural activity, education, social services. Capitalism is the most benign thing people have ever done. And that is why this motion, cumbersome and ambitious as it is, is also misconceived and why I urge everyone to vote against it. Thank you, Madsen. Our third and last speaker for the motion that Karl Marx was right, capitalism post-2008 is falling apart under the weight of its own contradictions, is Frank Ferredi. Frank is Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent. His forthcoming book is entitled Moral Crusades in an Age of Mistrust, The Jimmy Savile Scandal. Frank, your time starts now. Uh, Good evening, comrades. And, and those of you that still believe that the earth is flat as well. I think that uh, if you look at Karl Marx and you look at his writings on a wide variety of subjects, you'll find that he had a, a very simple interpretation of capitalism, a very compelling one. And he basically said that on paper, in theory, capitalism is a wonderful idea. It's a really brilliant idea, free trade, 
free markets, individualism, individual self-development. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Sounds really brilliant. He said, in theory, capitalism is a wonderful idea. The only trouble is, is that it doesn't work in practice. That's the only problem. It doesn't really work in practice. And one of the things that we find with capitalism, especially as it becomes more and more mature, is there's almost a, a desperate attempt to recast capitalism in, in a way that is almost a caricature of itself. Very often when you hear stories of, that capitalists say about their system, you almost imagine that they've been reading Harry Potter and they're just dying to write a, yet another volume, but this time you know, sort of with a, a capitalist happy ending. And the stories that you, you read in the newspapers are really very interesting. I don't know if you picked up this story a couple of weeks ago, which would have really amused Karl Marx. It was a very small story. It was really about the fact that our government, in its wisdom, has decided to privatize search and rescue operations. Basically, we now have a free market in search and rescue. And basically, privatization in these circumstances is really not so much about the market, but about a state handout to a particular company. It is really the welfare state for the capitalists. It's their kind of dependency culture that they often uh, sort of kind of go on about. Marx's theory of crisis is based on a simple idea. It's a, it, by the way, it's a theory of crisis that he actually shared with a lot of people who weren't even Marxists, who were often friends of capitalism. The, the proposition is very simple. Capitalism has a tendency to destroy the very foundation on which it's built. If you look at the way that capitalism develops, it cannot tolerate a genuine free market. Capitalism destroys the values, the traditions, the religions on which it was founded. Capitalism cannot live with communities. The communities that gave rise in Scotland to Scottish political economy are inconsistent with what goes on beforehand, and therefore virtually everything, virtually everything that gave rise to capitalism, its very foundation gradually gets unraveled through the process of accumulation. And therefore what we find is that with the passing of time, capitalism cannot continue to accumulate on its old basis. It reaches its limits. You see, what Marx was really objecting to wasn't inequality, I mean, that's the way it's often interpreted, wasn't the fact that some people were poor or some people were rich. Basically, his argument was very simple, was that capitalism cannot systematically deliver the goods, cannot systematically provide the living conditions that we need for a civilized society. There's also another point. Marx points out to the destructive consequences that are contained within capitalism, the tendencies towards disintegration, towards collapse. He makes the point that as capitalism becomes more and more mature, it loses vitality. It can no longer simply rely on individual capitalists to compete and raise productivity and increase production. It makes the point that as, the falling, uh, as, as, as profit rates fall, increasingly capitalism destroys its own defenses and is forced to look for new institutional solutions to keep on going. It's what uh, George called the coping mechanisms. Continually looks for different coping mechanisms 
to go on. And what he argues is that at a certain point, and this is the decisive insight, the sociological insight that Marx provides, at a certain point, capitalism is forced to seek refuge in institutions and in customs that actually contradicts its very nature. By the end of the 19th century, we find that free competition gives way to monopoly, an organized form of competition, because you simply cannot tolerate real people genuinely competing. So you've got these big, massive uh, kind of monopolies that carve up the market. You have a situation where it's not the Labour Party, it's not the left, it's not the socialist, it's the capitalists themselves that go beg the state to intervene. And state intervention becomes the way of life of modern capitalism. In fact, the capitalist class is so addicted to state intervention that it simply cannot do without it. I don't know if you realize, but even in Britain today, we've got this so-called neoliberal government. I don't know where neoliberalism comes from. All that I know is that in Britain, in British society, the state accounts for something like almost half of GDP. Anything between 45 to 47% of GDP is, is actually uh, sort of... Uh, carried out through state expenditure. And if you find even in neoliberal United States, the state plays a very active role in propping up capitalism in all the key areas, uh, all, all, all the important domains. So we have, we have credit. I mean, Robin talked eloquently about quantitative easing. I mean, you know, where is the free market there? You basically got these guys sitting around in the Bank of England and say, how much, how much should we give to these people? How big a handout? does capitalism need today? You know, let's ease their life, and you kind of, you know, sort of circulate all this money. Where's the competition? Where's the free market? Where is the basic logic of ca classical capitalism in this? And in a sense, what we find is that capitalism under these circumstances can only continue by destroying its very foundation. At a certain point, you cannot simply increase state intervention. I mean... Cameron is right. If the state in increased expenditure, we have a massive disaster. You know, it, it's reached its limits. You cannot just simply you know, sort of throw more money at the problem. At a certain point, you have what someone like Joseph Schumpeter, who was a friend of capitalism, called dis uh, created destructive creation. And it was this destructive creation that allows capitalism to per periodically survive. My argument is, is that rather than use Schumpeter's term of destructive creation, we have got to understand, that, uh, or creative destruction, we have to understand that the key challenge that faces us in the 21st century is not to uh, sort of look and pretend that there is no problem, but to understand how we manage the destruction that our societies are experiencing and will continue to experience. There is no doubt that the capitalist system will need to restructure itself in a very fundamental way. And the only way that it can do that is if it erodes the existing institutional framework within which it's based. So the question becomes, do we manage that destruction in a way that doesn't benefit the mass of society, but only a small section of it, or do we have a grown-up discussion, a serious grown-up discussion, which genuinely attempts to manage that destructive way in a sense that it will have a progressive outcome? Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Our third and last speaker against the motion is Judith Shapiro. Judith is a former revolutionary Marxist. She uh, was previously part of the team headed by Jeffrey Sachs, advising the Russian Ministry of Finance in Moscow in 93-94. She's currently a tutor in economics at the London School of Economics. Judith, your time starts now. Right. Thank you. I have three basic propositions to put you against the motion. First of all, capitalism is not collapsing. Let's have a reality check. If we simply look around the hall at this packed auditorium of the vibrant middle classes who are engaged in the Royal Geographical Society, which in Marx's day was an elite dinner club and now has 10,000 fellows who belong to that middle class, and if we think about the fact that there are grave threats to our welfare, but that this is very different both from the 1930s. If you are of my age, you have 
parents who told you over and over about that. It is both very different from that and very different from a system that I did see collapsing, the Soviet Union, which did fall apart of its own contradictions. Some people may try to explain that that was capitalism, but some people will try to explain anything. Uh, so uh, the, the point is that instead of the system collapsing of its own contradictions, it is, as the speakers who said they were for the motion have said, it is finding ways which are not strictly free market to keep itself going. And the notion of capitalism as a model, which can only be a market, is a model in our minds. It is not a reality. Capitalism as a word is our model of modern society. The second point is, as I've said, that it is indeed a grave crisis. This is not just another crisis. It is not like the oil shocks. It is not like the dot-com bubble. It is not like the 1997 Asian crisis. This is a an more or less epochal crisis in the sense that we have to resolve it in a very serious way in which we change the way that modern society works. And what we're doing right now is arguing about who is going to pay for the debt that has been run up, or in complicated terms, deleveraging. And what I want to put to you as the most single important point I would like you to take away tonight is that whatever is decided in the technicalities, and some of my students have written in a little blue booklet that you have most of you about these technicalities. However we do it, what we have to do is start reversing the inverse burden law, as I see it forming, in which the people most responsible for the crisis are bearing the least burden, and those least responsible, because they're not being exploited in the Marxist sense, they're outside the system, they are paying the most. And that is really uh, looking at what can happen with that. It's a very fairly simple story of what happened when we had that sort of debt as a result, both of the 30s and of World War II, that we had moderate and mild inflation. Okay, the third proposition, the final one, is that there is nothing whatsoever in Marxist economics that helps you to understand it. Some of the finest writing on the financial crisis I know is Robbins in New Left Review, starting, in fact, in 2006 with a wonderful article well before it was happening. But I have noticed, I have not calculated it statistically, but we could put a student to work at this, that calling yourselves a Marxist or not a Marxist gave you no particular advantage in foreseeing it. Uh, and the point is that as Robin himself said, I think it was Robin, the falling rate of profit is probably wrong. Frank Ferrodi basically made fun of all Marxism. And Tristram Hunt, as a member of the Labour Party and an MP, really doesn't want to get up and say that he believes Marxism is right. He is having a very good debating style, which he can do well, and enjoying himself, as I hope you are too, but none of these people are Marxists. None of them believe that. None of them believe that capitalism is collapsing. And to vote that way just to scare the idiots who are not doing policy right is a mistake. That's why Nouriel Roubini first said Marx was right. He was fed up the way that I don't know about you, but I felt when I saw what was happening about Cyprus. We nearly had a second Lehman Brothers. And everybody was doing their own thing and all over the map. And it was terrifying. But then they did actually get some cold water dashed on them and they did the right thing. They may not. And that is why we need education. We need to know what we're doing so that we ourselves can take more of a role. Because another thing, apart from the growth of the middle classes, so that you have not been ground down but the reverse, and all over the world this is happening, including in China. 
that it is the, the educated middle classes in Shanghai and in a city where they did not want a, a poisonous cancer factory. This is what I think is the forward march in China. And it will be also in Russia. It will be the ed educated middle classes there. And that is what we should not feel sorry about. Uh, Tristram Hunt, I was disappointed to see his article in the FT yesterday. I hope it was just a mood piece because uh, he, he, I'm sure he was asked because he is the finest chronicler of the middle classes. So I have had a joke before in January, February, that I have five opponents, you know, that I don't agree with Madsen, for example, on laissez-faire. But actually, there are five people, six people counting me, on this panel who have argued to you to support this um, to, to oppose this motion, and that's what I'm asking you to do, to see the sense behind the rhetoric and the good jokes and to choose both common sense and reality so that we can go forward and we can find a solution where the burdens are as little as possible. It will be unpleasant, but it will not be hell if we do it right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judith. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard six lucid expositions. We're now going to move on to questions. Um, I'd invite you to give questions or contributions as briefly and succinctly as you can. But before we do that, I have the results of the initial poll, the question you were asked as you came into the hall, to remind you the motion... In front of you is Karl Marx was right. Capitalism post-2008 is falling apart under the weight of its own contradictions. The result so far is very evenly balanced. For the motion, there are 203 votes. Against the motion, there are 214. And don't knows number 197. So it's roughly a third, a third, a third. There is everything to play for. Questions or contributions from the floor? I'll take three at once. Um, first, the lady in the middle there, then the gentleman there, and there's a question right at the back. If we could, if the ushers could take the microphones there, but Madam first. I have a question for the speakers um, speaking for the motion. Um, so you say that capitalism is um, falling apart, um, but you haven't really responded to um, Madsen's um, argument that capitalism is the best system that we've got. So what would you see as the alternative to capitalism? I should have asked you to say your name first, and if there Victoria. is any... Victoria. Victoria. Victoria's question, any of you? Well, I think that uh, there is no doubt about the fact that capitalism is disintegrating, and there's no doubt about the fact that Marx's analysis of, of this trend is absolutely correct. But Marx had two theories. He had a theory of collapse, and he had a theory of change. And his theory of change was that no system collapses by itself unless there is an alternative, unless there, are, there is a social grouping prepared to offer a different world. And I would argue that, at the moment, the big challenge that faces us is not to revel in the fact that capitalism is collapsing, that we've got these big problems that Judith outlined, but to work out a way of how we can manage what is a, a, a very serious process of destruction that we're going to be faced with in the next 10, 15 years. We haven't begun to see what this depression is really like. And I think in the course of that, we can begin to develop our alternatives. I think the key thing is not to close our minds to the future. We've got to stop living in the past. I mean, this is a discussion about... 19th century thinkers, but we really do need the 21st century equivalent of people who are future-oriented and can begin to develop some kind of alternative. There's one right at the back, a gentleman with glasses. There is a gentleman right at the edge. Is there a lady with a question? There, one, two, three. Uh, my question is... Uh, sorry, Mike, Michael Seifert... Um, do the panel think that capitalism really is the highest form of social development for humankind? Okay, second question there. Uh, 
My name is Igor. I'm just an uh, independent person. Um, it's, a, it's a question to, to the members of the panel who are voting against the motion. Um, I'd love to hear your views on the following. Do we even live, at least in, East, in Western Europe, do we even live in Western Europe under capitalism? Is it still capitalism? Can we call it capitalism with a welfare state, NHS, uh, the state intervention and savings of banking systems, auto industries, etc., etc., where the state controls more than 50% in some countries like France, probably 70% of GDP? Can we still call it capitalism? That's my first question. Okay, and can we leave it at one? Because uh, that's... Well. Third question. Uh, there, please. Thank you. My name is Anne Cormack. I'm red and tooth and claw, a capitalist, but I have worked in my career in the private sector as well as the public sector. My question to the panel is, is it not social democracy that is rather failing us now? In the sense that uh, if you look back at the causes of the crash... I would say it was actually the policies implemented by both Bill Clinton and also the previous Prime Minister in this country actually allowing people uh, who were not capable of having the right assets to be able to support borrowing to go beyond uh, what was feasible and realistic and sensible for them to borrow. Um, in, in those political moves lay the seeds of the financial crash that eventually happened and actually what we're seeing around the place is a, is a broken social dem democratic model rather than broken capitalism. Thanks very much. I'll turn to the opponents of the motion first, whichever of you wants to deal with those three quite linked questions. Is capitalism the highest form of social development? Is it in Western Europe indeed still capitalism? And is it not social democracy rather than capitalism that's failing? Judith. Yes, they are linked, I think. Uh, first of all, what do I think personally, I think my other panelists might disagree, is capitalism the highest form? I hope not, but first of all, we will need to be in a situation where basically we have abolished scarcity. Until we have that, as Trotsky brilliantly put it in The Revolution Betrayed, when you have shortages, cues form. Then a policeman is called to keep order. He never fails to help himself first. <laughs> so, and I, I think that I ignored the problem when I chose to leap into Marxism. I knew already, as a PhD in economics, uh, who really believed in, in it also, that scarcity was not going to be abolished easily. And with the new things we have seen that Frank Frodi thinks haven't happened, the productivity gains, uh, we have so many more things we want all over the world. And we are not, of course we could want less. I am happy I no longer want plastic bags and I'm perfectly willing to have a cloth bag I carry around and doesn't have to have a label. Now, but the point is that um, we can want somewhat less and maybe that's one of the things we will get out of this long period of deleveraging. That we will learn to live with less and with more leisure, which we didn't learn to do, and we will have, there are some positive sides to it, but uh, it will be not in our lifetimes, and I don't think in your children's lifetimes, not even the youngest people in the room, but someday I hope that many things will be, again, as Trotsky said, like a well-mannered boarding house. But I personally, as somebody who tends at a well-mannered boarding house to take the eggs I like first, I have to be careful and think, yes, first there have to be enough eggs for everybody. Um, and that's the, I, I don't want to, my answer to the other is, do we even live under capitalism? That is a definitional question, and I don't think that it is relevant unless you are a Marxist. <laughs> I want to know if, I want to know if it's good or not first. Then we can work out what it is. And again, social democracy, no, I think social democracy has to decide what it's doing, that one of the problems was that what I call social democracy and what I came to next decided instead to buy into the bubble and the boom. And it needs to find its way back. And I hope that people like Tristram will be part of that. 
because they went from the right of me to the, uh, the left of me to the right of me in a whiz, and many of you others may have felt that. I think there is a role for government in the banks, for example. I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll stop. Okay, um, thanks, Jim. <laughs> Frank, I yes. Go on. Yeah. yes. I, I think that you can blame social democracy for many, many bad things, but not for uh, causing the problems, because the interesting thing is that no matter what the government is, whether it's a Reagan-led government or a Christian democratic-led government in Germany, or a social democratic government in France or in, in England, we see a similar pattern of relying more and more on the credit mechanism. We see a situation where under Reagan and Thatcher, you had the securitization of the credit system. Under Reagan, in the earlier period, you have uh, actually an increase in state expenditure for a certain period of time. But state expenditure, not necessarily for welfare payments, but for armaments and for other areas. So I think it's important to realize that there is no government in the Western capitalist world that didn't buy into this uh, policy whose consequences we're not paying for. I haven't uh, sort of come across any of that in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. I think that uh, the really important thing for us to, to remember here is that the state can be used for all kinds of reasons. At the, at the moment, we have the wrong balance. A state ought to be providing resources for productive investments, like the way that labor did for the channel tunnel in the 70s, or the way that the French have done with high-speed trains. But instead of doing that, we're spending state expenditure on transfer payments in, in a way that has got no productive, productive outcomes or consequences. And I think we do need to have a very serious discussion of the balance between private capital and the state that at the moment all the political parties are avoiding. Um, George, quickly. Uh, very quickly. Uh, I mean, I so just want to endorse you know, pretty much everything that Judith said. I'm not going to repeat it. I thought it was eloquently put. The, as an economist, sorry, it's a bit nerdy, right? Uh, but that's kind of what I do. Um, but the, the, the standard text now about what do we know about financial crises and why do they happen and how, how do they behave and how do you get over them is now uh, a, a book uh, by two American economists by, called Rogoff and Reinhardt. It's called Eight Centuries of Financial Crises. Eight, sorry, yeah, Eight Centuries of Financial Crises. This time it's different, i.e. it never is different. And I think, you know, uh, Frank's point, which is that it didn't really matter what kind of political system it was, whether it was social democracy, whether it was free market, whether it was, you know, whatever it was. I mean, everybody suffered from the same problem. And the problem is, uh, well, the problem is just deregulation, in my opinion, that actually the, the idea about that you could free up those animal spirits in finance and expect human behavior to control itself. I mean, it's a human problem. Uh, and it's something that is, you know, it's a serial human problem that goes back to the days of Rome and even before. Um, it's not a uniquely capitalistic problem. It's exaggerated by capitalism uh, because of the nature of it. But I think that the idea that you, uh, I mean, there, as I said before, there are lots of interesting ideas about, you know, whether it's, you know, mutual societies or, you know, cooperatives. Uh, but, you know, handing kind of, Having state banks, the Chinese banks were mentioned before. The Chinese banks are insolvent. So, you know, and the only way that they stay in business is because of because they get continuously bankrolled by the state. That's not the answer either. Okay. Quickly, Roman. I rather think it is absolutely the answer. I think one of the marvelous things about the crisis is we suddenly realize money, which used to be that great thing that there was such a huge lack of, that actually governments can just conjure it into existence and can endow uh, other institutions with it. So uh, instead of use the, them using it to endow commercial banks, uh, I would rather think the network of social funds, that would be a much more creative way to use it. And I think it sort of uh, provides some of the answer to the question, can we do better? I think if we look at the world, there's too much misery, far too much. And I think it would be wrong for Judith to imply that we can sort of live with that and uh, uh, imagine the market will spontaneously solve it. The market hasn't solved it. Uh, so I think we've got to tackle it deliberately. I'm just back from Brazil and Ecuador, and I can say those countries have seen inequality sharply reduced in the last 10 years. 
because there are radical social democratic governments that haven't given up the ghost, as sadly most European social democrats have done, and have taken really stern steps to spread economic initiative to show that there is such a thing as public entrepreneurialism that can tackle problems and get the economy moving. Thanks, Robin. And the final act of the evening falls to me to read out the results of the vote. To remind you, the motion for the last time, Karl Marx was right, capitalism post-2008 is falling apart under the weight of its own contradictions. Before the debate, those in favour of the motion numbered 203, those against were 214, and don't knows were 197. Many of those don't knows have now made up their minds, and the result at the end of the debate for the motion, 217, <laughs> against the motion, 316, and don't knows, 37. <laughs> so my thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting the debate and to the speakers. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.